Hawks bus. I was sort of raised that this is the kind of thing where you go become a doctor, you become a businessman, you come do those things is that's going to allow you to support your family and do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then to have the opportunity to say, you know what, I've done that long enough. I've got a bit of a nest egg. I can take some, take some risk, make a little less money, still support my family and, and maybe do something that I really enjoy doing and be passionate about. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast, Relationships. Let's talk about it. I'm Preble Toplitsky. I'm a psychotherapist specializing in relationship issues. Everybody's got one. Partners, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, relationships. Let's talk about it. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in today. And I want to give a shout out to our sponsor for this episode, Gyro Creative out of Detroit, Michigan, owned and operated by dear friends of mine, Matt and Angela. Gyro is an identity studio. They help businesses and groups express their values through transforming their verbal and visual expressions that build culture and inspire change. So check them out at gyrocreative.com and you can go to the show notes and click on the hyperlink to learn more about Gyro Creative. And on a housekeeping note, those of you that are listening through Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate if you would take the time and give this podcast a review on Apple Podcast. Thanks so much. On today's episode, I have a conversation with my brother-in-law, Josh Googler. A few weeks back, my sister Edie and my brother-in-law Josh and my niece Sage were visiting us for a few days uh, from Chicago. And Josh and I uh, decided to have a chat about taking a leap of passion in your career, doing something you love versus doing something that's safe. We discussed our paths where we change careers to follow our passion. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this episode. I've got my brother-in-law, Josh Kugler here. We've been in each other's lives for close to 30 years now. Yeah, a little bit over, I guess. Yeah, a little bit over 30 years. Long time. And since we know each other's trajectories when it comes to work and experience, we've got some ideas about talking about pursuing passion and the balance of that as opposed to pursuing career for money because both of us have done both ways. We've pursued money in the past and also we pursued our passions and hopefully finding the balance in both. So thanks for wanting to venture me on this conversation. Well, it's great to be here. It's uh, be fun to talk about it, hopefully. Hopefully. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. Yeah. And so one one thing that spurred is how long has it been? Four or five years that you're in a second chapter of your work career? It's really a two and a half. Two and a half. As far as formally being in this sort of a second career. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are going to kind of, uh, I think, be fascinated interest in this second career because a lot of times what we think about that you're into is more about a hobby as opposed to the work. But you are in the pinball industry. 
Right. I now do um, software for pinball machines, which really means I develop the, the content for a game. So there's a designer of a game who does and the layout of the game. And it works a little differently on different projects. But in our company, our designer designs the layout. And then I take over from there to create the rules. What most people don't realize with pinball is there's actually rules and objectives and goals. And there's a lot that goes on. There's a lot of complexity around that. It's not just keeping the ball alive and and hitting things and scoring points, which is fun too. And a lot of people just play that way, but there's a lot to it. And then I work with our animator and our uh, sound engineer, who's really a composer who composes music for the game and our artist and trying to bring the theme to life. Um, and the two games we've done so far in our company were Houdini and Oktoberfest. So my job is to make that come to life in the machine. And hopefully if the designer has done his job and created a great layout and I do my job, then it's a machine that's uh, fun for people to play and enjoy and that they want to have in their homes. And so your first part of your career for maybe what, close to 30 years, you had, were educated at Michigan. I'll give you that, you know, being a Michigan state boy, that's all right. And you got an MBA, so you went into the corporate world and you work for very large companies and then startup companies. Right, so I uh, first went to Emory, got a degree in math and computer science, uh, then got my master's at Michigan and initially went to work for a Fortune 50 company. I went to work for Ameritech, as big a corporation as you could get and sort of you know, worked my way through there, navigating, uh, working up a couple of levels, doing a bunch of different jobs. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to go to a startup company right at the time that Ameritech was going through a merger with Southwestern Bell and later with AT&T. Uh, so it was a great opportunity at that time to you know, take what I learned there and go to a startup. It was during the dot-com era. So everybody had these thoughts of being young know, billionaires from being with a dot-com. What was appealing about that particular dot-com was around uh, educational software for schools and helping schools get on the internet safely. So I really liked what that was about, as well as that it was a chance to be a part of something from the ground up. I think it was employee number six at that company. It ultimately got to about 70 people before the bubble burst and eventually we were back down to three when we were able to uh, sell the company to another company. And then I went to work for them, did that for a few years. And then when my contract with them was up, I went to work for another startup that was started by the, the same guy started the first company. Uh, we had a much more successful uh, venture there. And I was uh, basically working there, did a little bit of consulting before taking on this uh, new job. So you have a lot of experience in the corporate and business world from behind the scenes of marketing and IT and so forth. And so this new venture, you're bringing in much more of your creative and artistic aspect of also the passion that you grew up in because pinball is not just something that you just thought of, oh, what the hell, I'll just join pinball. But you've loved pinball since you were nine years old. Yeah. When I was uh, young, when I was in elementary school, I, I had a friend uh, whose dad was in the pinball business. He sold pinball machines retail, and he always had one or two games in his basement. Uh, we actually used to play street hockey on his street in front of his house. We'd play street hockey, and then we'd get to go play pinball. In fact, one of the greatest games of all time, certainly of that era, is a game called Fireball that he had in his house. And that was when I first got hooked on pinball. And, and I played pinball 
my entire life, you know, in, in middle school and high school, we used to go to a place called foosball world. I was foosball tables and pinball machines. I, I played, you know, throughout college and grad school and, and always. So from my perspective, cause I kind of see that it was uh, interest and a, and a hobby. Cause I would come over to your house and over the last, what, 15 years, maybe, you know, one pinball machine downstairs turned into two, turned into three, turned into how many you got downstairs? Now? Yeah, so it goes one, two, four, eight. Uh, <laughs> I, I think there's 14 right now. 14 pinball machines downstairs. So when we go visit during Thanksgiving, it's kind of a fun fest going downstairs and playing. Pinball collecting is a little bit of an addiction in that when somebody starts, they get one machine and then they get two. And it doesn't take very long until it fills your home. In fact, I was visiting with the folks over at the Asheville Pinball Museum and I was talking to the owner there and They've only been involved in pinball for six or seven years, and it first started in their home, and he started describing that. I'm like, yep, I understand it. I completely fell to the point where it's like, okay, we should start a business so we could have more pinball machines, which is easier said than done. But it, it, it does become an addiction. And I know people with, you know, guys with five games in their house, and I know guys with over 100 games. And it's uh, it's just one of the fun aspects of pinball is every game's a little bit different in, in its own way. So when I found out that you were pursuing more of your second chapter in your career in pinball, I was very excited for you because, of course, you know, I took some risks years ago. And as we were talking about, my risk is different than your risk. I am maybe less of a risk than most people's because when I quit the corporate world, I was single. I didn't have the responsibility. I didn't own a house and, and so forth. And so I could go out and venture out for some years. I also had savings to be able to do that. Um, but I was fine. I didn't have a particular passion that I knew of to go towards. I was in the realm of trying to find my passion. And we were talking earlier about articles and books that are out there that says, pursue your passion, the money will follow or find your passion, the money will follow. And we're talking more about balance because I'm not here to tell people, yeah, go find your passion, go pursue your passion, then money will follow. Those books don't tell when or if the money will follow. And that won't always happen. Right. Uh, it absolutely won't. I think there's lots of people who start off in life pursuing that passion and find it, it doesn't work out for them. More often than not, it doesn't, uh, especially when you're younger in life. First of all, you're not always clear what you want to be doing with your life when you're pursuing that. Sometimes it's not what you're best suited for. We all think, and say, so I thought we were going to be you know, major league baseball players or football players. And then, you know, early in life, you realize, okay, that's not going to happen. And, and you have those various things. And some people are very successful in pursuing their passion because they have the, the gift for it. And, and some people don't, or some people it's, it's the wrong thing. And, and certainly it gets harder to take risks in life. Sometimes as you get older and you have a family, like you said, and you have kids when you, when you uh, multiple times I watched you kind of quit a really good job to go travel the world or, or go pursue something. You know, the one, the one time that I, that I remember that I really felt close to you was when I was in your basement and I already made the decision to quit my corporate job to buy, buy around the world uh, ticket. And I, part of me was waiting for you to tell me kind of a story about, or some advice about, you know, take care of yourself, but make sure that, you know, you're making some good decisions. But instead you got your guitar out and you played this song about working in tall buildings. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. um, I, and what's the, what was the gist of that basically? Uh, it's a song is called Tall Buildings by John Hartford. And it's one of my favorite songs. My, my good pen friend, Peter Farber, who's taken a very interesting path in his life in pursuing his passions. 
uh, that he would used to play. And the, the song talks about, uh, someday my baby when I am a man and others have taught me the best that they can. They'll sell me a suit, they'll cut off my hair and send me to work in tall buildings. Mm-hmm. And then the, the subsequent verse is, when I retire, my life is my own. I've made all my payments, it's time to go home and wonder what happened betwixt and between when I went to work in tall buildings. It is a very symbolic story of our life that very often that is what happened. You go to school, you go to college, right? You, you put on a suit, you take the train to work, you do all those things. And then maybe later in life, if you're lucky and successful, you're able to you know, retire and go do those things. Uh, in your case, you were doing it the opposite, right? You were trying to pursue some of those things first or you know, taking the opportunity to had enough money to then go travel. And I'm not sure if, you know, how much of the story people have heard uh, in the past, but I remember you, you, you came home and you were showing us you had this series of plane tickets. They were all one way. Uh, it was London and then like London to Cairo it, and it was Cairo eight to, destinations to that Thailand could go in one and, direction and, and all the rest. And your plan was to be gone for a year and you weren't gone for a year. You came back a little bit early because of your, your father's illness and you came back early and uh, then you came and lived with us for a while. That's right. I, that's, that's the one thing that, yeah, I could always rely on you guys. I could live right. with you. Well, it was funny because yeah, you came back and I said to you something like, rather than going you know, sleeping in your mom's basement, you know, why don't you come stay with us? And you know, I thought it would be a few weeks. I wasn't expecting it to be a Three few months. <laughs> a few months but and, and me driving your dots in that cool car right 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 because i had the extra car at the time and but i always tell people you were a great house guest because invariably if i came home at the end of the day you would typically take off for a while so you wouldn't feel there and you know, we, obviously we were, we're thrilled to have you it wasn't the first you know wasn't the first time like, it wasn't the last time i <laughs> yeah, should so say if people if you're going to pursue some of your passion make sure that you have a brother-in-law and sister that has an extra bedroom Right. We had the other opportunity later. And um, we actually more interesting because the second time you you stayed with us at that point, it was a little bit from a point in your life. You now had a a wife and a child and you had done a tremendous amount of traveling and come to the conclusion that you now needed a little more stability uh, in your life. Right. You you wanted, you know, Xander was, you know, three, two, three years old. You recognized Mm -hmm. you needed you know, a little more stability. And, you and know, I ran out of money. So, right. <laughs> right. And right, you painted our house for money. And people always talk about that. I said, you know, I, you know, still, you know, give a man a fish, you know, teach him to fish. I was yeah. happy to help you, but I need, yeah. you know, worked out really well. And which led you eventually to North Carolina was your next stop. And right. obviously you found your place here. Right. And, and that took a little while to you. You, you got going and, and you're very, you've been here a long time now. Yeah. 20 years. Went, went back to school, got a master's in counseling psychology and found that that was my passion. So I, I didn't have a targeted passion before I did this venture. I found it as I was exploring what was more aligned with myself and following a value of my true self. Right. And I think that, you know, gets to, you know, we were talking earlier uh, about, you know, we all make decisions in our life and whenever, whenever you make that decision, it changes the course of your life, no matter what. And each time you make a decision, we always talk about, uh, we joke about the fact that me meeting Edie, your sister, was partially driven by my brother not getting accepted at the University of Wisconsin. He did not get accepted to the University of Wisconsin, which was his dream school. He ended up at Michigan, which was his second choice. 
because he was at Michigan when I was looking at grad school. So it'd be great to be able to be back with my brother in grad school. And that's what brought me to Michigan, which is eventually how I you know, met Edie by being in Michigan. So not only the decisions we make in our life, but obviously they could be influenced through others and those lead us on all those paths and, you know, be interested. We could go back to a million points decisions in our lives that have have brought us here to this conversation today. But, you know, while you pursued early in life was in pursuit of trying to find your passion or what it was you wanted to do with your life. um, You know, I I was brought up and raised in a home where, you know, you you go to college, you get a job, you get married, you have kids. Um, You know, I was raised with, you know, a strong work ethic based on hard work and honesty and being a mensch. Uh, and doing those types of things and and concerned around uh, finances and savings. Well, certainly my my father was somebody who uh, worked very hard and made a very good living. But the lifestyle we lived in wasn't that different from what he had when my parents first got married. My parents lived in the house they moved into six months after they got married to so the house we all grew up in and. My parents lived in until my father retired, and even though uh, he was very successful in his business and could have moved to a bigger, fancier house and driven fancier cars and uh, you know had more of those trappings of life, he didn't. You know, he was always somebody who was focused on you know saving for the future, um, you know, protecting your family, doing those all those types of things, and and that was instilled in me as well. I've always been a saver. Eventually, that can pay off. Um, in life versus being a spender. And so that paid off for you because you did that your first part of life, saving enough, keeping your lifestyle uh, very affordable, not buying that extra house, as you said, not buying all the fancy cars, so that in some sense, this decision was more seamless for you in pursuing uh, more of a passionate job that you didn't have to focus on the aspect of the financial aspect as the number one reason to pursue it. Right. Working hard, saving uh, money for a rainy day. And then what happens ultimately is if you don't have rainy days, well, now you have a nice nest egg and it gives you options. The reality is money doesn't solve issues of life. It doesn't make you happy, but it can create opportunities and what those opportunities do for you. So when the opportunity arose to switch careers and pursue my passion of pinball that I loved my whole life. And there were some things that led up to that we can talk about. But the fact that, you know, we had saved and invested and spent our money wisely gave us a cushion where I could afford to take the risk and make significantly less money that I did previously. I probably would not have necessarily felt comfortable taking this risk or taking that, making this change if that was a factor, if we were living paycheck to paycheck. My very first job out of school when I was working for Ameritech, my very first boss uh, the first day said to me, he goes, you will sign up for the 401k, which at that point I really didn't see the value. And I thought the whole thing sounded like nonsense. It turned out obviously it was the best benefit I had at that company because he was trying to recognize and instill me as a young guy. Hey, you want to pay yourself first. You want to put this money away because it's going to build up with time. And you know, financial people try to give that advice to young people all the time. It's not the money you're putting away. It's that compounding. It's how that grows over time. But I incorporate that in aspects of my life. I don't Maybe it was somebody who, as soon as I had money, I spent it. I always felt I'm going to save it for something better later uh, versus having to spend it now. And we all have to make those choices of, you know, when we spend our money, how we spend it, you know, gratification 
now versus in the future. And in my case, it paid off nicely that I could afford to do this when the opportunity arose to suddenly, wow, say, wow, you know what? I could do pinball for a living. I can go do this. And the pursuit of it for me was to be able to do something creative in my life. Most of my career in management was managing people and process and work. And while there were certain aspects I could be creative in and always tried to find those, it was nice to be able to really do something in my life that was truly creative. And that's been a little bit of a challenge at work because it's a new company. Uh, I am by far the most experienced business person there, but I'm not there necessarily to be a, a business person in that sense. I'm there to be a creative uh, person. And that's the, the one of the battles I have is as they try to pull me into more of that stuff is to say, whoa, time out. That, that's not why I came here. If I wanted to be doing marketing or management or those types of things, I could have stayed in consulting or the other companies I've worked for go back to that type of a job. And they're not paying you to do that. Right. And, and make better money. And that's what I'll say to them. I'm like, you're not paying me enough to do this part of the job. You know, the, the, the challenge in life sometimes is the more hands-on and creative jobs don't pay as well invariably. And maybe because maybe they're better, you know, for your, 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 your being, And I guess maybe you need to be paid more to take more of a soulless job. That sounds terrible, but you know, but that's it, kind of the reality. It almost seems that way at times. You'll see people in careers who are in creative or hands-on work move into management and not like it because you don't get to do those things. So it really depends on, on what you like. And I've always been a uh, good with my hands and been creative in those ways. But in a sense, like I said, I was sort of raised that this is the kind of thing where you go become a doctor, you become a businessman, and you come do those things as that's going to allow you to support your family and do those things. Mm -hmm. um, but then to have the opportunity to say, you know what, I've done that long enough. I've got a bit of a nest egg. I can take some, take some risk, make a little less money, still support my family. And maybe do something that uh, I can really enjoy doing and be passionate about. And the thing about pinball is you cannot be successful in pinball without passion. Pinball's all about passion. And that's one of the great things about being in the industry is that so many of the people you work with are passionate about it. If you're not, it's going to come through in the end product. People often will suggest themes for pinball machines that we should do. And one of the ones that comes up frequently is the Three Stooges. People think, oh, it'd be great for a pinball machine. There's so much great material. Those guys were funny. And the it fits the demographic of, of your pinball uh, collector. And I say, never going to happen. And they're like, why? I said, I'm not a fan of the Three Stooges. And there's no way I'm spending a year of my life mm. with the Three Stooges. And if I had to do the Three Stooges, it's not going to be a very good pin because I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm not going to be able to put my heart into it. And, and and that's a critical thing. And even when you work in any industry, there are other pinball companies. So if, that, they, if they pushed you financially and said, you know, we did some market studies and three, the Three Stooges are going to make it, you would still say, find somebody else to do it. Absolutely. I, I would. I would not be able to do that title. Mm -hmm. uh, not possible. And I, I look at some of my, my peers in some of the other companies where maybe some of those guys have some control by the senior guys who've been around. Your titles come up and they probably go, no, I don't want to do that one. And some you know, down based on the pecking order, ultimately somebody gets stuck doing that title. Now, you know, some of those companies, when they're looking at a title, are going to talk to everybody about it. Is this a good title? Can people get behind this? Can you, can you do it? And I, and I've seen this in machines from our competitors. Uh, you know, it's a small industry. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everything. And certain games come out, and you're like, well, yeah, the designer was a really big fan of that, and you could see it in his work. But the guy who was doing the rules and the programming, yeah, he just wanted to get through it. 
right. and it's not there. And you can look at a particular programmer and say, you know, here are two games he did, and you can obviously tell, oh, this was clearly something he was passionate about. You can just see it in the rules, the way the game came together. And here is one clearly he was less so and was looking to just get through it. Um, and so right now I have that, that option and I have the influence to control that. So, uh, for any of the pinball people who are listening, no, there will not be a three stooges, <laughs> uh, pinball machine coming from American pinball anytime soon with your name on right. it. Now it's funny. <laughs> right, my name, right. we, we do have another programmer we, we've brought on, on, on board. Um, but my guess is he would probably have some similar feelings. And, and what's very interesting uh, about this guy is his career path very similar to mine in some ways. Uh, he worked at a, a Fortune 50 company for many, many years. He was at America Online from almost its earliest days. He was the longest tenured employee there. Uh, so he was very successful. He was their chief architect of their platform. Extremely bright guy, very, very successful, loves pinball. This is now his second opportunity with a pinball company. He also was with a startup that, that failed. Uh, when they announced they were going under, I waited an entire 24 hours before I reached out to him mm. uh, to see if he wanted to stay in pinball. There are a ton of people who know how to program pinball machines, and the work he had done on that game was very well received. Uh, so it's sort of interesting, and I think he has a little bit of that, that same attitude about, I'm only going to do this if I'm passionate about it, if I enjoy it, and I want to be doing it. Uh, I'm sure financially he doesn't need to be doing this. I know he is making far less than what he was making or could be making elsewhere, but he's doing it because he loves pinball and, you know, and it, and it comes out in his work. He doesn't necessarily view it as a job uh, per se, because it's... Was it ever in your thought process around your modeling is and can be an inspiration for your daughter, Sage, of how she makes decisions, follows passion. I mean, she, right off the bat, her, her studies is more of her passion and interest, trying to combine it. You can tell what that is, trying to combine it with hopefully making a living, but she's going more off with some of her talent. Uh, right, Sage is pursuing art education. She loves art and she's trying to find that, that path. She's also looking at art therapy. She's pursuing uh, a double major in art education and psychology because she's trying to keep her her options open. Uh, but yeah, we've always sort of encouraged her to pursue her, her interests rather than trying from an early age to say, here's the path you should take. You know, I think my grandmother wanted me to be a doctor and my mother wanted me to do that. So that was, you know, I went off to school thinking I was going to become a doctor and very quickly realized that was not for me. Uh, fortunately, I realized that very early in my in college career, that's not what I wanted to be doing uh, versus continuing to do. You know, sometimes doing what our parents want us to do could be a good thing, but more often than not, it's probably not. You have to choose your own path and, and find your own path. I have no doubt that your mom uh, had thoughts for what you should do with your life. And I'm sure that you heard it. <laughs> and, and I'm confident she did not agree with many of the decisions you make. Right. And I will say that because I've had to defend your decisions <laughs> to her in, in various yeah. conversations because our parents have a certain vision for us. But yeah. obviously the challenge as a parent, as you know, is trying to guide your child right. and instill with them you know, values and beliefs and hope you've prepared them to mm. be successful in life and be there to help them. I think we've both done that a little mm. less rigidly in trying to set the direction for our kids, which I know has made your your mom and and Jerry, you know, far more 
aggravated that yeah. it that your methods are not their methods but and you know i find interesting that some people even tell me this is you know my father died um right before i changed um paths and in some way that made it easier for me to change path and i hear that from other people when a parent dies it gives them also more freedom to make some choices that they know they may not be judged by or that they may not get uh, certain opinions that may be hard when that that parent is alive so i will say that that there was a freedom in that sense that okay i would have to deal with my mom and some other people but i didn't have to deal with my father and i would idolize in some way what his opinion would be of me as opposed to what the reality might have been of him giving an opinion of me you know, getting out of a really great paying job to to go pursue something that I didn't know. You know, the death of a parent. Uh, you and I have had this conversation in, in the past regarding a variety of people, and I've seen it so many times in my life that the death of a parent, depending on the age somebody is, has a, a huge fundamental impact in their life. I've seen people turn to religion, become extremely religious at the death of a parent. I've seen people turn to a very destructive lifestyle uh, as a result of a death of a parent, often because of a lack of support at the time it occurs in a family situation, the dynamics that occur. Uh, we've talked about people we know who their life pursuit changed dramatically in the need to be seen and, and visible because of becoming invisible during a, a long death of a, of a parent. And it can be tragic. I had a cousin who was I think 12 or 13 years old when her mother passed away from cancer. She did not get a tremendous amount of psychological support, which was really needed at that time. And she ended up in, in drugs and sex and was dead at the age of 40. I mean, it was a, a tra not a tragic death. It was a tragic life. Uh, so much potential because of that. Um, obviously, you were older when your father passed away, but there's no doubt it, it had an impact on you, had an impact on Edie. First of all, it, it recognizes that life can be shorter than That's you right. think it's going to be. Right. Um, I mean, your dad was... 57. 57. I mean, so it's the age... What, almost me. Right? Your age. Right. I'm 57 now, right. and it's hard to believe that's you know when he passed away. Yeah. So it has that impact. But yeah, in your case, right. It was a little bit of freedom. It was less... You didn't have to worry about him judging you. Right. Uh, in that regard. And, and explaining and... and justifying. Justifying and yeah. so forth. Yeah. So that has, has an influence, I think, of definitely people being uh, influenced by other people around them and their opinions. And it felt good for me after a while, I really did start not give a shit. And you could probably tell some of the decisions I made, the way that I lived my life and so forth. And that itself was an interesting aspect of actually getting into the work that I'm in. You know, one of my aspects of being a counselor is helping people live an authentic life and be authentic and be truthful. And so I had to do that in many aspects of my life to be able to really embody and model that to give people the space to really speak their truth. I think it's important in life in general when you get to the point where you come to recognize you don't really have to, you don't care what other people think. You, you worry about yourself and respecting yourself and, and that. And if at the end of the day, you can look at yourself in the mirror and respect who you are and what you're doing, that's ultimately what matters, that it's great to have the respect of others, but you have to respect yourself. And obviously you have to do what's you know right with, you, with your spouse and your family, but living up to expectations of others or the goals other people have for you, that's not the way to, to live your life. And you asked me earlier what my father would think about my, my career choice at this point. And I think if I was after- And your father died 
My father two, died about two, two years, years ago, three right. years ago. It becomes a blur. I've sort of lost track. I guess it's about two years. But my father was really gone two years before that, really. Unfortunately, um, when my mother passed away, it was when my mother passed away, I, I said to my my siblings, my brother and my sister, I said, dad won't last six months without mom. They were uh, as close as people could be. I just didn't think he would. And both of them said, no, you're wrong. His health is so good um, that he'll last or he's going to live for quite a while longer. And while his physical health was very good, unfortunately, the mental decline after my mother passed away, it was like falling off a table. It was rapid and sudden. The decline he went through mentally to the point that uh, you know, the dementia, he was just a, he was just like, I, I joked that some crazy old man has taken over my father's body. Mm. Uh, so for all practical purposes, from two years before he died, he wasn't my father anymore. Uh, it was just this kind of crazy old man. And that was, you know, that was difficult, uh, you know, to deal with uh, going through that. But um, I, I think if I was in my 20s and I made the decision to leave a well-paying corporate job with lots of security and all the rest to pursue pinball, he would have given me an earful of it and why he thought it was a mistake or whatever. But I think later in life, his attitude would have been, you know, I trust your judgment that you know what's best. Because over you know the course of that time, you know, I, I would have, I have earned, I had earned his respect in the way I led my life. Uh, to him, that's about doing what's right for your family and, and all sorts of, you know, he was always, uh, my father's a very stern, serious guy. A lot of people were afraid of him because he was very matter of fact and candid and blunt, but he always put family first and, and not just our family, but you know, that extended family. And so those are things, you know, I learned from him, you know, hard work, loyal, honesty, family first. And, and those are the things you, you build a foundation on. Like I know you can't really answer this with certainty but if he wasn't supportive of it in your 20s how difficult do you think it would have been for you to make the decision to pursue a passion over security i think i still would have pursued it despite that uh his not because um my own person mm. and i make my own decisions uh it probably would have made it a little more challenging just because of that that relationship with him because I think while he would have respected me making my own decision at the same time, if he felt it was the wrong decision, you know, that would have created, you know, some angst for us. It's hard for me to remember at which point he became, I don't want to say checked out, but not involved in the decision-making in my life and my career where he felt like, okay, you know, he's gotten to this point. It's on him. I've done my job as a parent to, you know, instill those values in him. What about your brother? I, you know, what was the support like? Because, you know, for me, your wife, my sister, has been tremendously supportive of, of me. I don't know behind the scenes if she says, what the fuck is he doing? No, but, no, you know, she's very supportive yeah, she's in pursuing the things you've done. Incredibly supportive over the years, you know. And the one in my family, of course, that's always been supportive of, of, of my decisions and lifestyle. She really believes in me. What was that like for your siblings? Uh, a very extremely close with my brother, uh, a little less so with my sister. Uh, we get along extremely well, the, the three of us, uh, which is great in, in life that when you can get along with your siblings, we don't have issues with each other uh, of any substance in any way. I talk to my brother, you know, practically daily, not always by voice, often through, you know, electronic means at, at this point. Certainly, he's, he's thrilled for me to be in pinball. He's living a little vicariously through it, I think, to, to some degree. 
he also is an incredibly hardworking guy. I mean, he was raised with those ethics. In general, we joke about, you know, Kugler men have uh, certain morals and ethics and hard work and family and all those things I talked about. He exudes those things as well, works incredibly hard. He has four kids and works incredibly hard. And I joke with him 10 years after he's dead, he's still going to be working hard to support his family and take care of them. Any of your decisions in uh, rubbing off on him and the possibility, do you see any little inclining of him starting to make some possible future decisions of going more after something that he's passionate about? I think part of him would like to, and I think part of it is the economics of it. Uh, I think it is a challenge to him. I think there's probably a little bit of that fear. Uh, he's very, very good at what he does. He's very successful at it. He makes a very good living. And I think that, you know, the, that fear that would go around, uh, be very hard for him to make that living doing something else. Um, and I don't think he's necessarily been able to uh, build a, uh, a large enough nest egg uh, you know, to take that risk. I think once his kids all successfully launch, um, and when that day comes where he has less financial responsibilities, then maybe he'll be able to more aggressively pursue those things. So I, I think maybe someday, and I think what I'm doing is probably inspiring him to want to figure out how to make that happen. And and, and he might, he's a little bit younger than I am. Again, um, with four kids, his youngest is just starting college now. So he still has some a lot of financial expense ahead of him. Certainly my goal with Sage and I know his is to minimize any financial student loan debt, mm -hmm. which obviously we have seen in our world today can be just debilitating for right. years and people not being able to get out from under it. And, and that's, I think, a factor he looks at as well. I know with his uh, youngest, he's making her take out some loans because he wants her to feel like she's got uh, some skin in the game. Uh, which I think there's uh, some logic to that. that makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, you don't want your kids buried under debt where right. they, they can't get out from it. That's not what, what college should be positioning you for. But unfortunately for some people, that, that's the only option they have, which then does make it very hard to start building towards a future and having options and having choices later in life. For, you, for your observation of yourself in, in daily being in an environment that you're more passionate about. There's less stress in, in some ways about paycheck to paycheck. Um, of course, we talked about you can have a passion in a subject or that you want to pursue at work, but if the environment isn't conducive, you don't get along with the people that you work with, the organization is for shit, that creates stress. But I'm just curious, do you observe yourself differently from that level of how you interact, let's say, when you're coming home? with uh, my sister and, and, and Sage and, or with people around you. Cause I, I know for myself, I'm more passionate about what I do. I love what I do and I share myself very differently. I have confidence in myself and so forth. And my relationships are more present, but there's offshoots too, to being a counselor. Sometimes I don't ask people how they're doing. I don't ask <laughs> how they are. But I'm curious, have, have you observed yourself differently in the balance that you've achieved? It's an interesting question. Even if you're pursuing your passion, a job's a job, and every job comes with shtick. You know, bosses, peer relationships, the challenges of the day, uh, all of those types of things. And, and occasionally I do have to actually remind you, it's still a job. I'm pursuing a passion. It's still a job, you know, and all of those dynamics are there. It's just that a large chunk of the day, you're getting to do something that's really enjoyable and, and that you care about. 
But having said that, certainly when you're spending part of your day where you like the work you're doing and enjoy it, it puts you in a better mindset in general. Right. So I'm sure, and it's just next time you ever talk with Edie about it, her perspective is I probably am less stressed when I come home. I am probably more engaged. I'm probably not as observant about it as, as you know, having thought about it than I was in the past, coming from a job where maybe the stress level was higher, the responsibilities are higher. Uh, you know, and that's the other thing. When you're an executive in a company, you're not necessarily pursuing your passion, but you're also carrying more stress and more responsibility. The success of the company, you know, resides heavily on on the performance of, of that leadership team in a company. Now, there's some of that in pinball because the success of our company is based on our machines, and if I don't do a very good job and nobody wants to buy our machines, the company is not going to survive. And I'm curious and, about this too because I'm curious. I, I don't recall my sister growing up loving pinball. So, uh, so what aspect does she ever say enough already? I don't want to hear about pinball or does, how, how does that play? Like your um, passion is different right. than hers. Occasionally she'll, she'll probably feel I'm talking too much about pinball. If uh -huh. you get me on that subject, I'm going to keep going and going and going. You know, I think she's happy that I'm doing it. And you know, what's funny though, is I'm seeing her thinking about the, the stress level. So when American pinball hired me, they hired me out of desperation in, in all honesty. Uh, they had started the company. They had brought in a very experienced game designer to get the game. They started to build a team. Most of the experienced uh, pinball software guys are working for other companies. Uh, they weren't out there. So they, they were having a hard time finding somebody. And uh, somebody pointed them in my direction. I had been doing custom uh, homebrew games, just building games for myself, which is sort of how I ended up in this, was there was a technology that came out called the P-Rock that lets pretty much anybody create a pinball machine uh, without having to have super deep programming skills or whatever. And a lot of people have now created games in varying degrees of success and complexity because what people don't realize when they pursue trying to create one of the, a customer homebrew game is it's a wide range of skills that are required. You need to be able to do software. You need to have woodworking skills. You need to have artistic skills. You need to have have a sense of you know, music and sound. And so it's very hard for people to be successful on their own creating this. And there's been some successful projects where two or three guys get together where they have the right combination of skills. Because so it really does take a team of people. But I've been pretty successful because I'm fortunate I have a lot of those skills in creating these custom games. And, and somebody, when they were desperate for a programmer, somebody said, you should go talk to this guy. He's done a couple of custom games. You know, he, he knows how to write software. You know, so they hired me, really not knowing whether or not I could deliver. And we did our first game in four months, which is unheard of. Typically, it's at least a year to develop a pinball machine. We did it in four months. And so for three and a half of those months, I'm sitting at my desk writing the code for the game without an actual physical machine to play and test on, which is typically not how you go about it, not for very long. And nobody there had any clue what I was doing and if I was making progress or being successful. And we're literally like a week before we're going to show the game publicly for the first time. Not anybody knew for certain we were going to be doing it. The first time we actually had a physical game that we could now put the software on 
and play. And it always astounds me to this point that none of them seem to have any real concern that all this effort could go to naught if I didn't deliver. And it wasn't like I was this proven entity. So it's, it's kind of funny when I think about that. And you know, we put the software on and the game played and it was great. And we had a, a huge first reveal of it. Did they have that expectation that that was going to happen every launch? Well, well that, that's a great question. <laughs> that is a big issue for us right now is that ownership who were relatively new to pinball. I think they thought, oh, it only takes four months. And, and, and it doesn't take that. And that's been a challenge. And even after the four months, it then took us you know, another eight or nine before games started rolling off the production line. We had to make changes. We first had to build a production facility. But yes, I think they're struggling with that. We talk about that. Uh, those of us on the creative team side around that, we set a very bad precedent and now trying to get ownership to understand how long it really takes and takes to do it right and, and, and be successful. Part of that is we were working 12-hour days, seven days a week, uh, longer as we got closer to that time. And that's not a sustainable model. And when I've presented in the past about how we did it, I always say experience, because not me, but Joe and Jim, the other guys who were really involved in the first build, were both in, been in pinball for, for, for years and years and years, 30 years or more each, hard work and luck. You know, a lot of things fell our way and went our way. And a lot of it had to do with relationships. Pinball, all businesses are about relationships with the pinball industry very much so. And because these guys have been around for years, they were able to pull in a lot of favors from vendors. I was shocked that we could design a part and two days later, a vendor would walk in with this fabricated part for us to use. So they, they called in a lot of favors to make that happen. And that's also not a sustainable business model. So in your trajectory of, of switching careers, there was an aspect of you pursuing this industry and you getting an offer from this company, or did you get offers from other companies? No, you know, this sort of was you know, almost in a sense out of the blue. Uh, you know, I thought about starting my own pinball company at one point. I decided when I started doing these homebrew games, I'm thinking, this is really cool. How do I make this my living? How do I make this my career? How do I marry my work to my play? And that's what some people really look at. Do they have to go solo or do they hook up with existing right. people? So I actually started looking at maybe I should start a company that at that time in pinball, there were a couple of brand new startup companies, you know, kind of, you know, sort of the old school you know, guys in a garage kind of a thing. Uh, in fact, there was one company that crashed and burned, but their name was Skip B, which stood for some kids in the basement, <laughs> which when the company imploded and tons of people lost their money, some people say, well, you know, there were some kids in the basement, <laughs> so you should have recognized that. But that was a thought when I created these homebrew games. I'm like, I could do this. How could I pursue this? And I actually started to to research and, and investigate it. I looked at a couple of themes that I thought would be great themes for pinball. I, I talked to some experts in the industry to, to get advice and then ultimately looked at it and decided that the risks were just too great at, at that time to take a, a, such a huge chunk of my own nest egg and put it at that risk. That was too much and risk. And that decision making also came from your experience of being a businessman, right? Well, absolutely, right. As opposed to somebody who's going to go take those risks and they're really not looking at the balance sheets and understanding Right. That. I'm looking at the numbers. I'm looking at the, the financials. Part of some of the startups that had some success in raising money was based on a pre-order model. 
you show people the game, you get them to give you money to build your business upon. And that is a very dangerous model. And because some companies imploded on that, it was clear that model wasn't going to work. So now there's even a greater risk because you're going to have to put up more of your own money in a, in a very risky venture. And, you know, so I did the analysis on that. I said, I talked to people, I talked to experts in the field, I crunched the numbers, crunched the numbers and said, you know what? I'm not willing you know, to take that that risk at this time. And I was looking at some other ways to potentially do it in, in a different way when American Pinball contacted me about, hey, we've got this opening, are you interested? And so then the decision was a little different. It's like, okay, well, here's my opportunity to pursue pinball with less risk, but less upside, right? Because it's not going to be my company. I'm not going to own it. And I'm going to have to you know, stop doing what I'm doing. So that's when then that decision comes in. Okay. And you were consulting at that time. I was consulting at that time. And so basically, you know, the offer for, for pinball was less than half of what I was making. Again, you know, limited upside, you know, down the road. So, okay, is it, I can pursue my passion. I'm going to make less money. Is this something I'm, I'm comfortable with? And because, you know, I'd worked hard for so many years and saved up money and built that nest egg. You know, obviously, I talked with Edie about it, but we were something very comfortable. She was very uh, uh, supportive of it. You know, I think she really you wanted me to pursue something I was passionate about. She had watched me over the years through various jobs, you know, some loving, some hating that. So, you know, I think she really wanted to see me be able to pursue something I could be passionate about. I think she understood that uh, very much. Um, so that certainly made it easier to be able to do that. Any tends to worry about money, even when I tell her she doesn't need to worry about money, but I'm very fortunate that she's, you know, spends money wisely. You know, she's not somebody who runs out to buy designer clothing and stuff when that's not her, her interest. She's very grounded in that way. So that certainly allowed me to take the risk and the decision. And I've worked with a lot of startup companies uh, through my life, so I'm comfortable with that to some degree, mm -hmm. that level of you never know if the company's going to survive. I tend to be of the mindset, I'm going to either ride it to success or watch it crash and burn. I've been involved in both. Uh, for all practical purposes, uh, one company that basically uh, during the dot com era that I think I mentioned we are was employee six, we had 70 down to three, the company got sold, I went to work for another company and then was with another startup that I was employee two. And when I left there, uh, I think we had 80 or 90 employees, the company's doing extremely well, I think it's increased dramatically as well since I've left. I'm hoping someday they'll do a financial exit so I can actually get a payday uh, from that work. That's sort of one of those things I hope for that someday I'll get that. And then who knows, maybe I'll start a pinball company then. Well, I'm curious, we got a few more minutes, but I'm curious of if there's people out there listening that are pursuing, not necessarily pursuing, but they've had, they have their interest, they have their, maybe their passion, they call it a hobby and they don't really know what next level to take um, that that risk or how to pursue it should they pursue it or not do you got any offerings any advice for people that know i'm i want to do something different than what i'm doing or i'm really sacrificing my my existence and not living my truth any offerings well what's funny what are the interesting things about pinball is pinball are, are, are people of passion i've had an opportunity to meet a lot of people who are making their career living in pinball who are doing other things and and took that risk whether they're you know selling machines or creating what are called mods for games or, or those types of things 
And all of them would probably tell you they had to make sacrifices to pursue that passion, that whether they were financial or other aspects of their life to do that. So it's a great thing to do, but you have to go into it with your eyes open. Uh, you have to recognize that there's risks and the risks are multiple. One is there's always a financial risk potentially of doing it. And the other is the risk that you ruin your passion. Um, you know, I have one buddy who invariably every X months will say, so do I hate pinball yet? Uh, he, he recognizing that, you know, when you do something you love and you make it your career and your living, maybe not so much. Uh, I have a, another buddy who also was a homebrew guy, ended up having a company pick up his machine and, and want to make it. And he, I think, has some mixed feelings about it because it was a huge success. And now there's this pressure for him to do it again. And there are also certain aspects of it he didn't enjoy. He loved the designing of the game, but not the programming of a game, which he had done his game. He had done everything. And fortunately, he's able to now adjust that a little bit. He's not going to program his next game. Actually, the guy I was just talking about is now going to step in and help him program it. So I'm looking forward to getting to ask him every three months, <laughs> you know, does he hate pinball yet? And I'm curious to see how, how he responds. So there's that risk as well, that you take something that's your passion, you make it your job, maybe not as much. I actually play far less pinball at home than I used to. Right. Uh, I used to come home. That was my big release. So now that's not my release. So now you need a different potential release because it's a passion, but it's a job right. and you still need to, to find that. So you, you have to balance those things. Obviously you have to make sure that you can still support yourself and your family. And that's part of the risk. But whether you pursue a passion early in life or try and find yourself or later in life, you know, it, it's certainly great if at some point in your life you're able to at least try recognizing that the odds of success maybe aren't against you, but will you regret, and I'm somebody who tries not to live with regrets in my life, you make the decisions you make at the time you make them based on the best information and knowledge you have. So I try not to have regrets, but, you know, uh, it's nice to be able to at least, you know, step up to the plate and you know, take that swing and shoot for the fences. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But, yeah. you know, it's better to have taken the try uh, than not. But like anything, pick your spot. Right. You know, find what's the right time for you and when you think it's right and not based on what other people think. Well, thanks for being part of my new passion of doing this podcast, and I'm taking a little bit of that uh, advice. I'm not, I'm not quit my day job as, <laughs> as, as a counselor. Actually, it's paying for this, but you know, part of my passion is wanting to do this more and more, and make this a transition part of my my work uh, career. So, thanks for being part of it and joining in on your visit from Chicago and coming down and and uh, wanting to spend this time with me. Well, it's great we were able to carve out this time that the family's letting us slip away That's here right. to have, have this conversation. And, and I hope your, your listeners enjoy it. And I guess if uh, just one person finds it, inspires them, or, or helps them through a part of their life, then certainly uh, well worth uh, the time we spent talking about it. Exactly. Thanks, brother. Thank you. All right. Relationships. Let's talk about it is a production of HeartShare Counseling and Consulting, PC, of Asheville, North Carolina. For more on licensed counselor Prepo Teplitsky, visit heartsharecounseling.com. Theme music by Adi the Monk. This content is intended for informational purposes only, is not a substitute for professional counseling and psychotherapy, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and does not constitute medical or other professional advice. 
Relationships, Let's Talk About It is produced by Oxbus. You can create your own professional podcast today faster and easier. Try it for free at oxbus.com. That's A-U-X-B-U-S dot com. Oxbus. Oxbus.